Hello, and welcome to our latest Headspring podcast on bringing creativity into the mainstream of business. Now, how to innovate, do it well, has long exercised the best management minds for decades. This discussion tends to focus on getting the process right, managing and the creative process so that it delivers identifiable results in terms of profitable products, services, and even business models. And we talk about the gatekeepers and resources and getting small teams off-site to brainstorm and so on. In short, it's all about getting a good process. But what is often neglected is how to get people to actually be more creative. Well, it turns out that there is a tremendous amount that business and corporate leaders can learn from the arts and from artists to help them be more inventive. And this knowledge can also be quite practical. To discuss this, I'm joined by Adam Kingle. An expert on, among other things, the future of work and he also teaches at numerous prestigious business schools, advises many of the world's top multinationals, and of course leads some of Headspring's own customized leadership programs. So welcome, Adam. Thank you. Now you have a new book uh, which comes out in April, or that I've just seen, uh, you've just given me uh, an advanced copy, which uh, I feel very privileged to have, and it's called Sparking Success. And I was struck by the impact on that companies and leaders can have um, when they successfully tap the creative imagination of their staff. Now, I'm going to jump to a quote, uh, a story that you tell in the book straight away. Um, I think it's about a senior executive, I think is at Unilever, who dismisses a very long-winded new product presentation complete with 90 slides. And it was for soap in India, launching a new soap product in India. And this person is asked instead to give a 90-second story that conveys the grand ambition of the new product. And he did so in a quite a moving way. And you tell quite a, a powerful story in this way. So I'm going to throw this to you, and I'm going to ask you to give me a 90-second response uh, to my first question, which is, why did you feel you needed to write this book? Your time starts now. <laughs> well... It started actually with my seeing two very interesting surveys that were conducted by one, two of the top four management consulting companies, um, both related to creativity. And they were both done, as I say, about the same time and unbeknownst to each other. One was a survey of CEOs asking them what their top three priorities are. And about 80% of these CEOs said, innovation and creativity is a top three priority. So great, okay, they're, they're well with it in the 21st century. At the same time, another management consultant uh, firm surveyed the rank and file in businesses all over the world, basically asking how good is your organization at innovation and creativity. And over 90% said effectively we're terrible at it. Like, we are crap at this creativity business. And at that moment, I thought, is there a bigger gap between a reality and an aspiration in business today? I don't think there was. Now, at the same time, I come from an arts background originally. My first career was uh, as a theater director. And I thought, well, there was a, a wealth of creative um, uh, input and, and ways of working in arts organizations in my early career. Why don't I see that in businesses? And generally the pushback I would get is, well, 
you don't understand. We are a manufacturing organization. We're a medical supplies business, et cetera. But I thought, but surely the leadership habits and ways of talking to their people and ways of conducting a meeting could apply no matter the industry. And that's when I started researching and writing Sparking Success. Mm, fantastic. Was that within 90 seconds? We'll check. I failed. I wasn't looking I at failed, my watch. I failed, didn't I? No, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a perfect sort of contextualization here. Um, and it's very interesting what you say about this, this discrepancy between what the sort of leadership aspires to and what ordinary um, staff actually see. And you see the same thing in engagement as well. When we do engagement surveys, mm. you see, well, the, you know, this belief at the top that everyone's engaged and a massive difference of ordinary mm. people. So you're sort of bridging this gap. Um, and what's interesting about the book is that throughout, you couldn't read it on sort of four different levels, all of which sort of apply to what you're saying. You can talk about the individual and how the individual creates very much what's going on in the individual minds, what inspires that person. And then you can look at it in terms of the leader's role what does the leader need to do to inspire creativity in others? And then you can look at it in terms of an organization. How does an organization need to be structured? What are the kind of best practices within that organization to get creativity and to survive? And then also you touch on the, the, the broadest concepts here, which is sort of looking into the future, which is, you know, what does our society need? What, are, what do we need as, as humans in a way, especially as we move into a sort of machine learning age to retain our sense of humanity? So at all four levels, you really cover a vast amount of ground. So perhaps if we can start with the individual, and there's a couple of things here. You talk about, you refer to neuroscience, how you actually become creative. And this is, of course, very important to learning as well, how you learn. And we, we've done some research into this as well. And it seems like you're sort of operating on the same ground. So tell us about the neuroscience of creative, what's going on in people's brains. Yeah, well, despite the fact that I said I wanted to focus on the arts, I did want to understand what was going on in the brain when we are when we are creative and what is the state that we need to be in, because I thought that would at least be, provide helpful context. And what I learned uh, as I was doing this research is that you know, we have different um, frequencies of brain waves that, right, that, that, that happen in, in our head and that generally our normal focused alert consciousness is called a beta state. So that's uh, um, 13 to 30 hertz uh, of, of brainwave frequency. Hertz, of course, because um, our brain is, is made up of electrical signals is what makes it work. That's why hertz is the, is the measurement. But actually, gamma state, which is a higher level of hertz frequency, 31 to 70 hertz, is the super-focused mind, increased brain power, peak state of consciousness and performance and inventiveness. And what I learned is that we can't just automatically jump up to gamma and stay there. Well, then the question is why? And actually, it's remembering that the brain is a muscle and that to get up to gamma and to stay there requires practice. Just as we might say, well, I couldn't possibly do 100 dumbbell curls. Maybe not now, but if you work at it for a year, maybe you could. The same is true with uh, getting up to this, this brain state of gamma. The problem is we are so filled in our day-to-day -day with just fulfilling KPIs and answer this email and go to this meeting that we're constantly in beta. Or, of course, if it's a committee meeting, theta, which is light sleep. But that's for another day. And 
And so, so to get up to gamma and stay there, we have to devote time, regular time, and a decent amount of time. So if you just say go up to get up to gamma for, say, 10 minutes, it would still be very hard to, to continue to get up there and stay there. So creating time for creativity was one, and two is building it into your daily routine and giving you sufficient time that you can practice creativity is sort of one thing that I think a lot of... Um, uh, I found very useful in terms of under, just understanding the neuroscience, but also a lot of artists have said that the only way they can stay creative is to have dedicated time for new ideas, for new thoughts, for reflective thoughts, etc. And I thought, well, that that's a perfect metaphor then for how the individual leader can be um, more creative and innovative and in how they show up uh, on a daily basis for their people. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting, isn't it, that what's inspired you to start writing the book with this very glib kind of response from leaders to say, we've got to be more creative. Yeah. But you don't just become more creative. You can't. And, and, and that's where the problem lies, is the idea that we can just turn on a switch and suddenly everybody's more creative. Or the other point, which is there are some people who are creative and others who are not, and we'll just tap those creative people. But you're, you're saying, look, actually, everyone's got the capacity to be creative but yep. you've got to work on it as you say like going to the gym you don't just lift 100 kilos even if you're determined to yeah you know you have to work up to it and that's what requires a process and a, a, a long-term vision about that you know you're talking about people wanting to focus on you know their day-to-day -day jobs and you know we're a pharmaceutical company or we're a law firm or whatever mm. what is it that holds people back then from being more creative i mean what's the sort of the mental enemy so to speak you know is it just well look my day is fairly humdrum it's lots of tasks i want to get them done then i can enjoy my weekend without let's say the hard work and the discipline of institutionalizing creative thinking mm -hmm. you know you might just think well i don't you know i'm happy just do my job go home that's it is that is that where the obstacle lies there are probably several obstacles. One lies in individuals not giving themselves enough time uh, to be creative, so we've discussed that. The other is that people don't have confidence in their own creativity. So they, you know, they're basically saying, well, I'm not a creative person. However, human beings are filled with creative capacity. Um, but over time, we lose the ability to tap into it. Um, we don't practice it. We don't believe in it. And so it withers on the vine but it can come back. The other problem is people look around and they say, well, who's successful around here? And I'll imitate what they do, and therefore I will be successful. So if the leaders, the role models, the bellwethers in an organization aren't creative, then there's no hope that the organization can develop a, a creative capacity. And sometimes organizations do make a mistake where they sort of say, well, if I'm going to be creative, we simply have to hire a creative person. We'll, we'll hire a chief creative officer, and, and that will be it, sorted, tick. The problem with that is once you say you have hired a chief creative officer, then everyone else has abrogated total responsibility for ever being creative because it's someone else's job. And that goes back to the siloization of function, but also human capability that you'd have to look all the way back to the uh, foundations of the Industrial Revolution to discover you know, why that is, where we parsed out human activity into more and more minute bits where people start to then define themselves by their um, mastery of these finite bits. 
So then when we ask them to be more Renaissance people and exercise inventiveness and creativity, they not only don't believe that they can do it, they've forgotten how. Mm. Yeah, you lose the capability for, well, maybe not for good, but until someone awakens it. And it's interesting because, you know, there is that tendency to say, well, we have an R&D department, we have an innovation department, those are the creative people. But it's a terrible waste of resources. I mean, even I've looked around any of the organizations I've been involved in, you know, you don't know how creative people are. You, you know, they have whole lives that are not being tapped. Um, and uh, we have no idea. We're just blindly going along, missing that tremendous resource, which is right in front of us, but needs to be cultivated. And one of the ways that you talk about is bringing in art forms and showing how those art forms can um, convey that creative instinct um, and you know at first sight you think well how would that do so you talk about jazz musicians you talk about improv improvisation theatrical improvisation improvisation comedy you talk about the you know culinary arts the cooking across the board there are so many things tell me uh, a little bit how jazz can convey a sense or sort of stimulate that creativity in a business setting. Well, I think jazz is a great metaphor because it jazz force if you are a jazz performer, you have to be open to everything that's happening around you and responding to that context and that environment. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm gen when I'm generally sitting in like for example an exco meeting or a board meeting for a client, a company, etc., they're almost always saying the world is adapting faster than we can personally adapt or that we can collectively adapt. What's wrong with us? So there must be some uh, some uh, human capability that those leaders would behoove themselves to tap into to allow themselves to respond in the moment to what what is what is occurring in their environment. And jazz is composition and performance occurring at the same time, taking stimulus and immediately responding to that stimulus. Mm -hmm. Isn't that exactly what we're asking businesses to do right now in this turbulent world? The missing point there is the listening. They yes. also have to be listening to the other people around them at the yes. same time, and that seems to be missing. Yeah, and, and part of that is that as leaders we get very obsessed with our expertise. The reason I am a leader is because I know things mm. instead of I am a leader because I am open to what's possible. Mm. And part of that is simply that I think we've, we've, we don't have proper definitions anymore for what leadership or management is. If you look in a, in a thesaurus in almost any language on the planet and you find the first most common synonym for the verb to manage, what you'll find is some version of the word to control. We still think of management as controlism instead of relevance. My job as, to manager, as a manager is to make us more relevant tomorrow than we are today. And that means you have to constantly be horizon scanning, constantly responding to what you're discovering, and to do so in a more reflexive, autonomic way. Mm. And presumably constantly on the lookout for where ideas and talent might yeah. be hidden and to try and draw it out. And you... Tell this story, which I found actually quite moving, um, about jazz group um, that had come in to demonstrate that anyone can play if 
surrounded by the right support. And I think there was a case of a woman, you'll have to explain it in more detail, but where she got up on stage, she couldn't play an instrument. They told her whatever it was to press one, one, one key or one note, and they played around her. And suddenly there was that sense in which, you know, wow, I'm part of something that's actually rather beautiful to listen to, even though she wasn't an expert. And I guess the message getting across was, look, no matter how small your contribution you think is, actually it can work. And you mentioned that she sort of almost burst into tears or burst into tears. She did. She did. Because suddenly that whole idea resonated with her. It really came across powerfully. What, you know, is is that really what the message of the jazz can, can do, that everyone can take part? Well, it is, and also she was very resistant to the idea mm. when when the when the jazz quartet introduced the idea that you know anyone can play jazz even if you've never played an instrument before, even if you can't read music, and they invited you know someone in the audience to come up, particularly someone who hasn't ever played an instrument, and you're immediately going to start you know sit at the keyboard and we're going to play a piece together, and you're going to play put your fingers on the keyboard and just start playing notes. And she, as, as opposed to um, even observing the activity, she immediately said, this is, this is ridiculous. Why, why, why are we doing this? This is a complete waste of time. And so they asked her to come up and, and play. And yes, you're absolutely right. After they played the piece, she burst into tears. And I think the reason is she had remembered what it is to tap into that beginner's mind again. Mm. The idea of you don't have to define your self-worth by what you know, but you can also open yourself up to the playfulness and the creativity mm. implicit in saying, I don't know what's going to happen, and I want to explore that. Often we get so much joy and wonder and, yes, you know, drawing a tear from the idea of, oh, if we could only recapture the playfulness and openness of being a child. Mm. And somehow we got it in our heads that those qualities would be counterproductive in business Yet, for all the reasons we've already talked about, in order to be a responsive, agile, adaptive, inspirational business, those are the qualities we have to remember. And I think her tears probably emerged from the catharsis Mm. of rediscovering what she had lost. And also, I guess, you know, if it sounds good, then that's the output. Then that's, yes. You know, sometimes you can't work out whether you've had a contribution, but the results are there to be heard. Yes. I mean, look, I guess cynical people will say, well, you know, I've been on these off-sites and, and, um, you know, we all had to build a wigwam out of spaghetti or whatever it was. And, I mean, I I love these things because, I, (laughs) you know, I get to hang out with my colleagues and they're a laugh and there's always a good, you know, reason to to make fun of things. And it's, it's a good bonding experience. But I often think, you know, what what am I getting out of? What am I learning here? And it seems like the problem is that you don't, you know, the way we do these off-site tasks are not being analyzed properly. Yeah. They're not being observed properly. And that's why there's no lesson. Yeah, we had a right. bit of a laugh. But actually, if you had watched each individual and how they reacted and drew conclusions... Um, is that the problem? Is we don't don't do those sort of offsite get together games yeah. properly, and they aren't facilitated properly. Mm. But to your point, that you know, I, sure, I'm all for building spaghetti wigwams, but the point is not what the wigwam looks like at the end. The point is how did we work together? What roles did we play? Did we immediately just jump into the task, or did we talk about how we we're going to work together in the team? Were we open to ideas, or did we just immediately start uh, implementing the first idea that someone came up with? Uh, were we dominated by the most charismatic or extroverted 
or most senior personality in the room. Mm. Uh, you know, the so-called, I love, I, I learned this lovely phrase the other day, the hippo, the highest paid person, oh, uh, yeah. highest paid person's opinion. Mm. Instead of, let's all think about what, what's possible. It's that, the process and the dynamic that is the value. And to say, well, could we do more of this more often to get results in a more relevant uh, perspective, mm. like how do we uh, increase sales for this customer segment? But the spaghetti wigwam is a useful metaphor to play in for a while to make the implicit productive dynamics explicit. Mm. Um, now, there's another dimension to this, which again you talk about, which is to be creative under pressure. And I think that that element of it um, is a vital part of it because you know we work under pressure and we have to deliver results. And you talk about the um, the the creative process around that uh, American sitcom uh, Friends, which yeah. was extremely popular about what twenty years ago or so. But um, tell us about the way in which one had to be creative under the pressure because you know you had to have it ready for the next showing and the next episode uh, you know what elements had to be part of that yeah. process yeah i mean talk talk about pressure right this is a great example of creating under pressure because in a us sitcom so you've got about 24 episodes in a season and and you you create an episode every week so every and and believe it or not the writers do not write every episode in the season before they begin filming so once you've done the first two or three episodes you are rehearsing and filming and writing as you go. And then add the additional pressure of this being a hit show. So there are a lot of advertisers and broadcasters that are depending on you. The writer's room is an intense pressure cooker of a place. So I interviewed the executive producer of Friends, who is basically another word for is that is that they're the head writer. You know, they are the, the, the primary creative in the room. And he had so many habits, even micro habits, just tiny turns of phrase that he would use to keep the room creative and and focused, uh, actually. So he said, for example, um, he knew that there was a constant competition to come up with funny lines, but he realized, well, his job is to look at the big picture. Is this advancing the macro stories? Is this consistent with the characters? Is this helping move this relationship along? So he would have to be the one to, to remind the writers, that's a great, it's a funny line, but is it advancing any of these other things? That's one. Another thing is he realized that for them to create funny episodes week after week, they would have they would have to produce lots of bad ideas. And one way in which he would promote the contribution of a volume of ideas is that he would intentionally say bad ideas. He would say, oh, here's an idea I have, say it, and then pause dramatically and say, boy, that wasn't a good idea, was it? And that all of a sudden gave everyone permission to say, okay, I'm not going to get my head bitten off if I have a bad idea. I don't have to sit on my hands until I have a genius idea. But this is often so what happens in business meetings is, you know, the CEO sits and says, we need a new idea in order, we need to grow by 10x in five years time. How are we going to do that? And everyone says, oh, gosh, pressure's on. I'm not going to say anything until I have this genius, 100% uh, certain idea. So, of course, no one says anything. Or wait for the boss to give you Or an wait idea. for the boss and go, yes, boss, that's a great, that's the idea. That's what we'll, that's what we'll do. So it, it was really quite brilliant the way that this um, head writer had mastered bringing out the, the best ideas in the room over the course of a week, which does not mean every idea has to be a wonderful idea. It's how do we get the best ideas for this show 
um, by the end of the process. Um, and so many of those things, in fact, almost everything that he shared with me was applicable, was universally applicable. He shared this wonderful metaphor. He said, trying to, sometimes we get stuck. We, we have to advance the plot and we have to create a funny moment and we just can't do it. And the metaphor he gave, it's like you're in a corridor and you reach a door and you really want to see what's behind that door. So you yank on the door, but it doesn't open. So you yank harder on the door and it doesn't open and you yank harder on the door. And then everyone gathers around you and says, try this, try this. Do we have the key, et cetera? And everyone keeps, and, and he said, the metaphor, finally, you know, someone in the room goes, why don't we just try another door? And that was another part. He said his job was to encourage people to try multiple doors. If, if the idea isn't working, stop yanking on the damn door. Mm. <laughs> Let's. And, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, and these things seem to be quite small, but they have yeah. a huge impact. Huge. Don't they? Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess it, try, reading that across into a, into a corporate meeting, um, yeah, you know, these, these subtle pointers, nudges, um, aren't really explicit, are they? No. And they need to be, or at least... They need to be consciously doing it because that's how you move the discussion on in a in a in an open way. Yeah. Um, and, and and by the way, that's exactly sort of what where how the book emerged. I didn't necessarily know it was going to happen in that way, but I thought really what it's about is what are the micro habits, the verbal ticks, almost the language you would use to enhance the creative capacity of a team or department or organization. And some people just do it naturally, and that's wonderful. But I wanted to make that explicit so that everyone can practice. It does need to be explicit. Yeah. I mean, like I've been in meetings where, brainstorming meetings, and the, the boss, not, not at this company a while, a while ago, and the boss walked in and said, I'm only going to be here for five minutes just to set you all up, get you going. And uh, we all ready to sort of brainstorm and then he spoke out of the hour he just spoke for 50 minutes mm -hmm. and then got up and walked out leaving us with 10 minutes i don't think anyone was he was even aware that he just wouldn't stop and you know that's an extreme version of it but it's sort of this if you don't have the self-awareness at least have the techniques yeah that's right and that sort of brings me on to the sort of a second way of looking at that and that is how does the a leader create, inspire that creativity in others. So we've talked about how the individual, how they wrestle with these kind of things. But one of the things that came out very powerfully was this simple response that if someone comes up with an idea, you don't say uh, yes, but, mm -hmm. but you say yes, and. Mm. And it seems like a little bit of sort of, you know, uh, verbal trickery. Yeah. In fact, it's like I would liken it to a sort of judo, a judo hold that a slight change, you know, of a weak point changes the entire mindset. And if you force yourself to say yes and in response, it forces you to be positive and look for the opportunities rather than the reasons not to do something. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I did an offsite with the exco of an Antipodean mining company several years ago. And we did lots of things. We covered lots of topics. But one topic, we only spent about 20 minutes, was shifting your vocabulary from yes, but to yes, and. And, you know, and, and at the end of the, of the week, they said, well, what are the commitments we really are going to make to one another? And one of them was we're going to say yes, and a hell of a lot more. And after about a week, I caught up with some of the direct reports of the people in this, in this exco, and they said, my God, what have you done to these people? They're completely different. They're so open. 
and they're so, you know they're so empathetic and they're so friendly all of a sudden and you know and now we're talking about having strategic conversations rather than just tactical et cetera et cetera and that was the difference mm-hmm. and so to go back to the tool itself when we say yes but we think we're being supportive and letting people down gently in fact what we're doing is sort of killing ideas in their cradles we aren't giving them a moment to just explore. Yes, but, let's face it, yes, but means no. Yes, but means sit down. Yes, but means shut up. Hmm. Even worse is if you start with, with respect, <laughs> then you know you're in, tr- you're in real trouble. If you start with the greatest respect, you're about yes. to be fired. Yes, exactly. Well, uh, there's a cultural as well. You have to be careful about that. Yes. Well, yeah, yes. You know, English-American audience would understand that, but well, others yeah. might not. That's true. No, you're absolutely right. And when you say yes and, you're saying, let's just explore that for a moment. Let's just, ex- let's just assume for a moment that that's a brilliant idea and let's play it out. How would we implement it? What would be the impact if we implemented it? What would it entail? Who else would we need to involve? And here's the thing. The, the pushback I usually get from executives or managers is, yeah, but I don't have an infinite amount of time. I don't have an infinite amount of money. I don't have an infinite amount of resources. I can't say yes to everything. To which my response is, you don't have to. If you say yes and, when someone suggests an idea, you don't have to do it. Mm. Yes and is simply saying, for 30 seconds, can we just explore the idea? Yeah. It, um, and that gives the person respect. You're acknowledging them mm. uh, for a moment. You're saying your idea might have merit, and I can't at face value, on the, on, on the basis of one sentence and one breath, Tell, assess whether it's a good idea or not. Mm. So let's simply explore it. You don't know where it's going to lead to. Yes. And, you, you know, you can't understand everything. It's, I, I, someone, a friend of mine told me that they were, they were talking about, um, it was a brainstorming meeting, any ideas allowed, there's no censoring, absolutely anything, and they said, who are we going to interview? Let's think about who we're going to interview. And people said, well, let's maybe a junior person interviewing the CEO and all these sort of ideas. And it got around to my friend, and they said, you know, what, what's, what do you think? And he said, why don't we interview a dead person? At which point, absolute silence in the room. <laughs> and then the person running said, look, I don't think you're taking this very seriously. Actually, if he said yes and, it could have been, well, let's think about what, you know, celebrities or famous people might have said in a certain situation. Yeah. And as we sort of role played what could have been, Actually, there were some amazing ideas yeah. that came out of it, but it was closed off right from the beginning because it just sounded so outrageous. Yeah. I think probably if there was one very practical thing, just do the yes and. Definitely, yeah. That, that is certainly one of, as you say, if someone says, just give me one tip from the book that I can practice tomorrow, I would probably 90% of the time jump to the good old uh, yes and. This question of how do you map the creativity with that sort of, corporate uh, imperative, the discipline of actually having to have an output. Um, And you um, interview uh, this London Symphony Orchestra uh, cellist, uh, Sir Clive Gillinson. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things he says is um, that you have to actually have two roles. You have the creative role, but you also need the sort of that management role. Yeah. And I think there's a tendency to separate those two things. Do you think that in getting that right combination, the answer might be in having those 
two functions in the same person. Yes. Yes, that's right. And 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 he would Sir Clive Gillinson, what he was a cellist with the London Symphony Orchestra, then he became its managing director for 20 years, and now he's actually the managing and creative director of Carnegie Hall in New York City. Hmm. I very rarely encounter someone who who holds a the managing and creative director position. Uh, but that is exactly how I would like to think leaders should should think of themselves. Okay, so that's how you get to Carnegie Hall, is it? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So it's not when now I'm hold, now I'm wearing the management hat, and then later I'm going to wear the creative hat. Actually, you got to cut the two hats in half and stitch them together and wear both at the same time, uh, because then you can think, consider ideas, even the silly ideas, even the extravagant ideas even the inspirational ideas, and you have no idea how you're going to do it, and start to think about, okay, what will be the resources required? How would we manage the risk? How are we going to get the investors for this or, or, or what have you? And it's always holding them in balance and recognizing that actually they aren't two opposing forces either. When organizations, when, when CEOs say creativity and innovation is a top three priority, they're not saying despite our create our, our, um, commercial imperatives. They're, they're, they're saying that creativity and innovation will accelerate our commercial imperatives. And yet when it comes time to start brainstorming and evaluating and choosing creative ideas, too often the conversation immediately comes to trade-offs. Mm. These two things can and should be correlated. And that's when uh, using the metaphor of, of looking at a creative organization and a creative leader in that organization like Carnegie Hall, that becomes so apparent. Mm. Um, and just another aspect of the leader, I found perhaps my favorite quote in the whole book was um, from George Lucas, um, <laughs> the film director. And when he came across a problem, he would tell people, just think about it. Yeah. And I love that because it's so open ended. And this is the license you need. Just think about it. Let's just That's think, right. you know. And I think that's also a, a sort of a driving force in this. Now, um, let's move on to the organization's perspective. So we've talked about what happens with the individual. We talked about how you lead into others um, to get creativity. Let's think about how the company itself, the organization itself, needs to go about it, which goes back to your initial point, which is why you're writing the book. These companies just don't seem to be able to do it. Mm. Um, now, there are obviously stories in the past that are often, you know, discussed a lot, 3M and, you know, giving people time off and so on. Do you think the idea of setting aside time for anybody to be creative, maybe a day a week or an mm. hour a day or something, do you think that is that a sort of viable approach? Do, do people work in that way? Well, yeah, I do. And, and particularly... At I wanted to find examples from so-called traditional industries where people, where organizations are giving people time to explore creative ideas, projects, passion ideas. And so 3M is one, Google is another, WL Gore is another. Um, and when I share this with companies, sometimes the pushback is, yeah, well, everyone's just going to go golfing. Mm. So we can't do that. Okay. Well, first of all, why did you hire these people in the first place if you don't trust them? Hmm. <laughs> you know, if you can't even trust them to have an ounce of self-discipline and self-management, why are they even in your company? But, but two is, let's say 1% of the people to whom you give an hour or a day a week to explore uh, their own creative ideas. 
what if 1% of them go golfing? What benefits do you get from the other 99%? But no, we obsess of the lost resource of the 1%. Who are hitting the links? I'd put it the other way. I'd say, what if ninety nine percent went golfing, but you got the one? Well, link exactly. On the 1%? Yeah, because some those people who did the twenty percent uh, to explore uh, their own ideas at Google, for example, those out of those projects, we got Gmail, we got Google Maps, we got um, mm-hmm. autonomous driving vehicles. Most of those examples I gave you are huge creative hits, which, as as you say, more than make up. From from a revenue perspective, from any lost internal resource for people not using the time wisely. But practically, um, isn't it fair for the boss to say, look, I, I want to see some output. You, I want you to tell me what you've done at the end of the, the quarter or something. Is that, it, you have it, that it, it is fair, and those organizations do do those things. Um, so once someone believes that they you know, ha- um, have a great idea, they have to pitch it. You know, mm-hmm. and if they, they want to build it up, they still have to make the case for it. And certainly, uh, the boss will you know go to their people and say, okay, what are you, what have you been pursuing for your mm-hmm. for your passion projects? Um, I think that's that's perfectly legitimate. It's not it doesn't exist in a you know in a black box. Uh, yeah, you know, so we never not, speak of it. It's not quite as free then as no. you're making out. You're saying, look, okay, yeah. tell us what you've come up with. Yeah, and it should be somehow relevant to the business. Mm. You know, it's not. You know, just go away and learn. You know, learn to play the trumpet, for example. Yeah. Unless that was relevant. Or oh, I your found a new golf swing. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> I think it's that balance, isn't it, between allowing for the creativity, but having some sort of parameters, some sort of check to keep it commercially uh, viable, and it doesn't lose credibility. It, yeah, but to which, though, I would add, you don't need to find, figure out the commercial viability too soon. Sometimes you don't discover mm. the commercial viability until later. When, as soon as we put the, cre- the commercial viability lenses on, we immediately start restricting the expansive creativity of the idea itself. Mm. And, and it, all of a sudden, exponential ideas become incremental ones. Yeah, and you're also sort of setting a, a scene, aren't you? You're yeah. saying, we're serious about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's signaling a very important yes. process, isn't it? Yes. Um, now, one of the areas, and I, I love the way you just find arts from all over. So culinary, the culinary arts, whether it's an art or it's a, a trade or whatever, you know, it, um, that's a debatable question. But I find the restaurant, the idea of chefs, very, very interesting here because the commercial pressures are immediate. You know, we can come up with a new dish, but the answer is, do, does the customer like the taste of it? Yeah. You know, is it going to, we've got to, you know, get the customers through the door. So the immediacy, the commercial immediacy is is there. Tell, tell me something about sort of the way in which, you know, very creative chefs yeah. manage to channel or keep the commercial viability going. Because this is, a, I think, is a very more intense example of, of the arts, isn't it? Yes. Well, and you're right. You, you sort of immediately get guest feedback, right? You put a new dish on the menu. Mm. People will immediately tell you, either verbally or through how many dishes of that you sell, whether it's a good idea or not. I thought exploring the culinary arts was a wonderful way for me to... to, to and I didn't, I, I didn't realize this, but, but I, di- I discovered there are sort of three ways in which intensely new creative ideas are fostered. And obviously what I'm going to share is not unique to the culinary arts, but it just culinary arts illustrated these three paths in such a such a beautiful way. One is combinatorial creativity, which is you don't have to come up with a brand new idea, but take existing ideas and mash them 
together. Mm. It's sort of related to the the point you made earlier is, well, let's interview a dead person. And so you have to speculate. Well, how would uh, Gandhi have dealt mm. with this challenge? Mm. Uh, and that alone creates you know, brand new ideas. So combinatorial creativity is quite uh, is quite common. You know, for example, you see this in like East-West fusion, right? Let's use like French mother sauces like Espanol and Bechamel and Hollandaise, but combine it with an Asian ingredients like you know coriander and guava fruit and things like that. And there you get you know wonder uh, you can get wonderful things, but it does require lots of testing. So you go through a lot of iterations. Otherwise, you get what a lot of food critics call fusion confusion. Mm. Yeah. So that's one. Um, it's, it's combinatorial creativity. And in some ways, it could be the fastest way to try new ideas. Let's just take something from this bucket, something from this bucket, and just see if mm. anything happens. The other way is through just R&D, right? Like what some chefs said is in order to have effective R&D to create wholly new techniques or dishes or whatnot is we have to separate it from the day-to-day. And actually, you see this quite a lot in creative literature uh, or uh, people who talk about the ambidextrous organization that you have to exploit and explore at the same time, but sometimes you have to keep those in separate rooms. And it depends on the organization, whether that's the right approach. But you, I saw this in a couple of you know, world-famous chefs, Ferran Adria, who, uh, from El Bui in Spain, who was known, you know, he had the top restaurant in the world for something like five years in a row, which was completely unheard of. He shut the restaurant six months of the year to completely reinvent the menu for the six months that they were mm. operating. Heston Blumenthal, here at home, at, you know, at the Fat Duck and, and Dinner restaurant in London, he has a separate R&D kitchen. So that idea is, okay, we have to do some, we have to create some dishes that are so technically complicated, we have to do them perfectly. And through that repetition, we have to keep that in sort of one room, quote unquote. And then separately, we'll, we'll explore and we'll imagine and we'll try lots of things and fail. And we'll do those things at the same, at the same time. Mm. So that, that's the R&D approach. The third road is complete reinvention. And often I find this to be useful if an organization, particularly a startup or an entrepreneurial venture, if it, if it really is predicated on the personality or the background of the individual. Just as, for example, earlier days of Apple, right? Can you even conceive of Apple without Steve Jobs? So I, was, I, was, I found this fascinating story of uh, Chef Alain Passard, who is arguably one of, if not the greatest chef, living chef in France and right now in his three Michelin star restaurant Arpege in, in Paris. And Al, Alain Passard got just so tired and worn down and, and broken down, and, he's, and he went completely, um, he left the, the restaurant and he went on a, on a sort of reinvention, self-discovery sabbatical for a year just to see if he could refine what what he had, what was missing or what would uh, what would ignite his next 20 years as a chef and what he discovered are vegetables mm. and that sounds ridiculous but think about it. if you're a Parisian chef 20 years ago your reputation probably depended on your mastery of meat and mm. fish Parisians like a bit of protein, animal mm. protein. Times are changing. But times are changing. Mm. And a, prob- a lot of that started with Alan Passard, who discovered, I can make my menu vegetable-centric. It can just be carrots and turnips and Brussels sprouts. Often created using the same techniques as I use with meat and fish, but completely different textures and flavors. And when he discovered vegetables, 
the whole restaurant was reinvented. Whole, all, the, all the dishes on the menu were reinvented. The point is it began with personal reinvention. And certainly I would admit that that's probably the most complicated way to create is you have first have to reinvent yourself. But it is a third path, and I thought it was worth worthy to explore that in the book. Yeah. I mean, that is a very, very bold um, yes. example. Yeah. Well, we'll have to move on from this because sure. it's just before lunch, okay. and you're making my mouth water, <laughs> and it's very hard to focus. There's, there was another um, aspect of the kind of organizational wide approach. And this was an extraordinary story. I can't remember who it was, whether it was McKinsey, where they got everyone to perform an opera. Yes, it was McKinsey. scale. And it's extraordinary because when you think about a company that needs to change culture, a company that maybe is part of a, a merger, and this is the post-merger integration challenge, which is probably the biggest challenge of, of, of any merger, getting everyone to engage, hundreds of people engage in such a spectacular thing. Is this a viable way of doing it? Because this is a massive investment and it seemed to have worked mm -hmm. to deal with huge cultural change. Yeah. There are several, you know, strong corporate examples in the book. McKinsey is one, Diageo is another, Metals and Mining Company uh, in, in South Africa is another, where they were dealing with intense transformation and change and the way in which they did that was using the arts, either creating a mural, putting on an opera, uh, bringing actors into the office to interact with colleagues. The point is you're approaching the challenge of reinvention and transformation obliquely, and you're tapping into people's subconscious to rediscover that curiosity mm -hmm. of what it might be like to be different mm -hmm. instead of clinging desperately to the past. We can tell people they have to reinvent, but it's much more, we're much more likely to achieve success if we use a creative catalyst to help them envision a new possibility and, and find that curiosity that they've lost, you know, like an old beloved rock that you suddenly rediscover in your back garden. It's fascinating, and the details are all in Adam Kingle's book, Sparking Success huge amount of advice, guidance, inspiration here. I definitely recommend reading it. It'll be out um, next month, um, Sparking Success by Adam Kingle. And you look at the big, broad societal changes as well, um, which I think we should always, businesses should always keep their, their minds on as well, that actually the world is around us is changing so profoundly. Thank you very much, Adam, for coming in. Thanks. It's a very stimulating conversation, um, and we will talk again soon. Brilliant. Thank you.